listening to the Survival in Motion podcast. Learn, adapt, prepare, survive. Hello, everyone. This is author Cal Wilson. Welcome to another episode of the Survival in Motion podcast. On today's episode, I'm just going to be covering some loose ends, so-called, from previous episodes of this podcast, with the exception of the first issue that I want to get into, and that is the parade massacre in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where, as of the recording of this episode, there have been six fatalities and a whole bunch of critically injured people. I'm just asking for people to pray for those who are injured and trying to recover, and also the family and loved ones of the deceased, and also the families of those who are trying to recover. I can only imagine the heartbreak these people are going through. We need to keep them in our prayers for comfort during this period of mourning. I can only imagine the heartbreak uh, these people are going through. It is relevant for a prepper podcast because this is something we need to learn from. Well, maybe not the people listening to this podcast because I think we're all on the same page as far as stuff like this goes. But the perpetrator of this horrible crime was let out on bail just a few days earlier for $1,000. And what he was charged with is trying the same thing with the mother of his child. And this is a ridiculously low amount of bail. And it's a common theme nowadays that requiring bail is a racial thing, which it's not. The figuring out of bail is routinely high for stuff like this. If, if somebody's charged with trying to drive over somebody else, that should be a pretty high bail. And in bail considerations, the judge considers whether this person will show up again or will skip bail, which this perpetrator has done in the past. Or the judge also assumes guilt. And that's not just one jurisdiction here or there. That's in all jurisdictions. The judge will assume guilt when they decide what the bail amount should be. And in this case, it should have been very high, especially with this guy's long criminal record and the fact that he had just tried to drive over somebody only recently and was let out on $1,000 bail. I'd like to point out that Kamala Harris, our current vice president, has in the past arranged or she's called for people to chip in to bail out people like this. And also the whole left in general is trying to persuade judges and jurisdictions and prosecutors and everybody to just not even bother with the requirement of bail. Obviously, this is a bad idea. One other thing I wanted to point out is that the prosecutor who was handling the earlier case, his name is Chisholm, is one of these George Soros-backed prosecutors. And there are a number of these types of prosecutors in the United States. And this guy Chisholm in the past has talked about we need to be fair and equitable and not discriminatory, etc., in the prosecution of crimes and in incarceration rates. In other words, kind of a affirmative action when it comes to crime fighting, that you don't want to be such a zealous prosecutor depending on 
the skin color of the defendant in question, which obviously is the wrong thing. You, you don't do social engineering at the prosecution stage. You leave that to other politicians. The job of a prosecutor is to enforce the law, and that's it. It's not a job of social engineering. And we have now an example of what could go wrong when that is the concern of the prosecutor. Like I said, we need to learn about this. But, of course, the people listening to this podcast, I think we're all on the same page. But here's the thing. If you find out in your area that George Soros and the left is promoting a certain candidate for district attorney, it's time to sing it from the rooftops. This person is soft on crime. People who contribute to various campaigns, that is easily looked up on the internet. And the last George Soros PAC, I think, was called Democracy USA or something like that, or Open Society or whatever. They have different names, but it's all just a way of George Soros and rich leftists like him to funnel money into campaigns of leftist candidates for prosecutor. And that is what we need to publicize. All this is easily looked up. If you find out that a candidate in your area is backed by these liberals, you need to publicize it. Now, another thing, speaking of crime, a few years ago over in California, the voters passed Proposition 47, which made a lot of felony thefts, only misdemeanors. And lo and behold, California is just astounded that now shoplifting has picked way up. And it's gotten so bad that, that whole stores are having to close down. I read somewhere that Walgreens in San Francisco is shut most of their Walgreens stores there. And I don't blame them a bit. So obviously, stuff like that comes up. We need to vote no. And now we have an example of... If you adopt this proposition on being lenient on crime, look what happened in California, and that can happen here. So back to the Waukesha, Wisconsin incident. This is horrible. It's heartbreaking, but we need to learn from it. And prosecutors who are favorites of the far left, they need to go. They need to be voted out and never voted in. And there are ways to look this up. We also need to pray for the first responders and, yeah, and even the police officers involved with rescuing these people after the carnage here and driving them to the hospital. And also the Good Samaritans there, as I understand it, right after this guy blew through with his car, not only were police officers there, but Good Samaritans uh, just grabbed who they could, put them in their car and drove them to the hospital. I've always said this about police officers, but also about Good Samaritans, that what these people went through is a real shock. It's not something that you just go home at night and go to bed. These people need therapy of some kind, and it's shocking, and it's post-traumatic stress disorder that these people go through. I'll be putting some website addresses and 800 numbers at the bottom in the show notes. We need to be praying for all of these people. All right, another thing I wanted to mention a few episodes ago, I talked about the value of a second passport. And almost immediately after that episode went out, I saw a meme on the internet. It showed a bunch of North Koreans, you know, dressed as such, celebrating. And the words were there that said, North Koreans celebrating that they don't live in Australia. <laughs> and I looked closer into it and 
Australia is behaving kind of freakishly because of COVID. The rules keep changing all the time there. But at one point, you were not even allowed to leave Australia. And there were problems with Australians being let back into the country. People were ordered to stay at home. And there was an app that you had to download, and it would prove your location. In other words, you would prove to the government of Australia that you were in your home and you were not venturing out, all because of COVID-19. And by the way, we're learning more and more that the hospital rate and the the mortality rate of COVID-19 is not as bad as we thought it was. But the point is, I just want to say, Australia is behaving freakishly to this pandemic. The clampdown on rights that is going on in Australia. And like I said, the rules are changing. So it might be different by the time this episode is published, but it's bizarre how strict the governments in Australia are being regarding COVID-19. What I'm leading up to is this, that getting out of the country of Australia would be a whole lot easier if you had a second passport. And specifically, there are passports in the Caribbean countries, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, but there are also relatively inexpensive second passports you can get in other countries. And having a second passport, if you are an Australian citizen, would make things a whole lot easier if you choose to get out of Australia. So I just wanted to point that out. Okay, another issue I wanted to cover is the ongoing controversies regarding the COVID vaccine. The news has recently hit that so far this year, in 2021, there have been more COVID deaths in the United States than at this point in 2020. And of course, how can that be? Well, because so far this year, we've gotten 60% of the American public to be vaccinated. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the COVID vaccine was supposed to be so safe and effective Well, apparently that's not the case if we've had more COVID deaths this year as opposed to this point last year. And the vaccine mandate that came out of the White House a few weeks ago has been stayed by one of the circuit courts of appeal. And I hope that the United States Supreme Court is next. And I hope that they rule that it's obviously unconstitutional to order everybody to get a vaccine that hasn't been tested as much as your typical vaccine has been. Supposedly, the next group of people who are going to be ordered to take the vaccine are interstate truckers. I think that would be a bad idea. The news out on the booster is that it is becoming more and more suspect. And there was a governor of one of our larger states, California, Governor Gavin Newsom, is encouraging everybody to get the booster. And he himself went and got a booster shot in front of all the cameras. And then in the next two to three weeks, he was completely underground, off the grid, away from all the cameras. And he came up with some lame excuse. But the rumor is, which I believe, is that he had some kind of adverse reaction to the booster that he got that he's urging everybody else to get. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is becoming more and more annoying to me, is now recommending that toddlers as young as six months old get the COVID vaccine. No word yet on whether he is recommending that pregnant women get their unborn fetuses vaccinated. 
That's my attempt at humor. But the way things are going, who knows? Who knows? I wouldn't be surprised if someday, in fact, maybe I shouldn't have even said that because I kind of feel like maybe I'm giving him ideas, but hopefully that won't happen someday. Stay tuned on this topic because I think it's headed to the United States Supreme Court and hopefully the United States Supreme Court will rule that this is unconstitutional to order everybody to get a vaccine, especially one like this that has not been tested nearly as much as other vaccines. All right, the next subject I wanted to cover as a loose end is Kyle Rittenhouse. This is a subject I touched on a couple of episodes ago that I had seen the videos taken. And that's one thing about a huge protest slash riot nowadays. Everybody's got uh, video cameras on their phones, so you can see exactly what happened from several different angles. It was clear to me then that his encounters with these other people where he shot and killed two people and he shot another guy in his arm— these three encounters were fully self-defense on his part. There's an unknown person he shot at and missed. That was clearly self-defense as well. And I'm very glad that the jury came back with a clean sweep of all of these charges against Kyle Rittenhouse were ruled as self-defense, and he was acquitted on every charge that was brought against him. From my own experience, I know that prosecutors are pretty common sense for the most part, except when a case makes it in the news. And my experience has been that all bets are off. Prosecutors can do some pretty dumb things whenever a case hits the news, like this case. I don't think this case should have been brought in the first place, but here we are. And I want to say that the coverage I've seen of this trial leads me to believe that, number one, Kyle Rittenhouse was even more innocent than I thought at first. And the people he dispatched and the one guy he shot were even more despicable than I thought. All of the people he came in contact with had criminal records for violent acts. And, of course, the first guy, Rosenbaum, had been convicted of child rape of five little boys several years ago. That guy was bipolar and just tried to kill himself a few days earlier. I feel even stronger about his innocence now than I did before. And I feel even stronger about the relative guilt of the people he came up against that night than I did before. The media coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse matter from beginning to end was completely despicable. When I hold my nose and listen to the talking heads discuss the Kyle Rittenhouse, their opinions follow their complete misrecounting of the facts. To hear them talk about it, a white supremacist, as there's no evidence to that, a white supremacist got a gun and crossed state lines. Of course, that's opposite of the evidence. And he went into a town that he has no connection to. That's, of course, not true. He has a whole bunch of family in Kenosha. And he looked for peaceful protesters to kill. Was it a peaceful protest? Of course not. That's the opposite of the truth. And was he going there to kill people? No, he was not. So, I mean, just right on down the line, the mainstream media got it all wrong. And I think it's a great thing that the trial was actually televised. So if I'm wrong, if I'm saying that the mainstream media is wrong on this, well, just go into the video, look for yourself. I mean, just right on down the line, every 
encounter he had with other people that night was trying to defend himself. And it's a little hard to say that it's not self-defense. When he was running away from all of these encounters and all these other people were attacking him, kicking him or bashing him in the head with a skateboard and reaching for his gun. I mean, one right after the other, right after the other. Everything is on video showing him trying to get away and people attacking him. And also, if you turn up the volume of all these videos, what you hear is an angry mob chasing him, saying, kill him, kill him, we've got to kill him. It's so ridiculous to say it's not self-defense, what he went through. So the mainstream media, just from beginning to end, even before then, what was this riot about? It was about a black guy who had been trying to kidnap a kid, and the cops were called, and they came across him, and he came at the cops with a knife. The cops shot him. They did not kill him. And that's another thing the media gets wrong. They say, well, this guy was killed. No, he wasn't. He's still alive. So, I mean, just right on down the line, the media got it so wrong, and they can't let go of it. They're still talking about this white supremacist who went to Kenosha to kill people. It's just not true. It's amazing. Okay, why am I mentioning this in a prepper podcast? Of course, it's nice to vent a little bit about what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse and how I'm glad he was acquitted of all charges. But the reason I'm bringing it up on a prepper podcast is, number one, self-defense can still get you prosecuted. You can be as clean as the clear-driven snow and follow all the rules and be provably innocent of homicide when you are defending yourself with a firearm and you can still wind up in the same situation as Kyle Rittenhouse. Of course, he had a smile. Of course, he was happy as he left the court. But the last year and three months of his life, I can verify from having dealt with clients in a similar situation, his life has been miserable for the last year and whatever it was, three months. So he's not happy to have gone through all that. And I think if he had it to do all over again, he would not do it. So it is possible to be in the right and defend yourself with a gun and still go through a hell like what Kyle Rittenhouse went through. The good news is that the message from this trial is that it is okay to stand up to the mob. I mean, you can stand up to these violent BLM and Antifa mobs You can stand up against them, and you can come away without being in jail. And that's something the mainstream media does not like. They do not appreciate that. They want anybody who stands up to the mob to be ruined. And Kyle Rittenhouse, good for him, at least made the point that in central cities, maybe not San Francisco, maybe not New York City. If this happened in New York City, if this happened in San Francisco, I doubt the jury would take it as seriously as this Kenosha jury did. This Kenosha jury spent an extra four days after closing arguments looking over all the evidence. I think your average jury in San Francisco would not have done that. They just would have heard Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Joy Reid talk about this is a, a white supremacist who came to kill people, and then they'd probably convict. So at least in cities in the middle of the country, it is possible to stand up to the mob. Another thing that we learned from this trial, and say what you want about President Trump, but in the last 
couple of years of President Trump's presidency, if there was ever any doubt before, the point has now been established that the left in the United States condones or makes excuses for violence. And I've always felt that in a political debate between right and left, the right says, okay, in whatever argument this is, that, uh, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this, and there's this argument for conservative principles. And the liberal says, well, I disagree because of this, because of this, because of this. Oh, and by the way, if I don't get my way, I'm going to resort to violence. And at that point, I tune out because I don't listen to political arguments from people who condone violence. Violence is something that tunes me out. But if there's anything we've learned in the last two or three years, it is that violence is something that the left considers one of its arguments. And I know that's kind of harsh to say that, but that's where we're at right now. The left condones and defends violence. In all of these mainstream media discussions I've seen about Kyle Rittenhouse, there was never, never any condemnation of the violence in Kenosha. Never. And you'd think there would be at least a perfunctory, oh yeah, I'm against violence. Okay, yeah. No, there was none of that. It was just assumed that the people who showed up in Kenosha to burn the place down, or I should say to burn the second half of that city, it was just assumed that what they were doing was normal. And there was no need to condemn it. Well, that's wrong. That's a bad thing. But that's where we're at right now. The left in this country condones violence. The takeaway that we can all have from the Kyle Rittenhouse matter is that you need to be prepared. You need to be armed. You need to have lots of ammo. But keep in mind that if you do defend yourself properly and legally, that you can still be prosecuted and be put through the living hell that Kyle Rittenhouse was put through for a year and three months. Keep that in mind. All right, on to another subject that I covered a couple of episodes ago, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, altcoins, whatever. The closest I can say that makes it relevant on a Prepper podcast is that all of these coins are becoming substitutes for the U.S. dollar and other fiat currencies. And here in the United States, it's becoming more and more apparent that we're facing some inflation ahead. That means that the dollar will buy less and less. So it's like gold or platinum or silver or other dollar substitutes. It's something that is store of value that needs to be taken seriously. I still feel like I'm learning what all this is, but I have a couple of other things I wanted to point out on top of my episode a couple of episodes ago, which was entitled Crypto for Preppers. Number one is the volatility is still there. Bitcoin recently hit over whatever it was, $65,000 per Bitcoin. And then almost within a week, it was down in the mid-50s again. So the volatility is there. And there's a lot of FOMO which is F-O-M-O, which is known as fear of missing out. So there were probably a lot of people who said, wow, Bitcoin is now 65, whatever thousand dollars. I'm going to take out a HELOC on my house and buy some Bitcoin, which they did. And then a week later, their $65,000 investment was $55,000. So keep that in mind that when you put money into this market, 
you know, you upload money into Coinbase or whatever, and you buy this, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or any of the other altcoins, that it's extremely volatile. And if you put too much money, you won't be able to sleep. You'll lose 20% overnight. Of course, Bitcoin is working its way back up. So I just wanted to point out the volatility is still there. And fortunately, I was not investing in Bitcoin back in the early days. There was a lot of volatility in the early days where it went up a couple of thousand dollars and then it went down to less than a thousand and it stayed there for several years. So it's all very volatile. And if you invest too much money in this stuff, you run the risk of looking up at your account for years and feeling like an idiot and hoping that your friends whom you told about this don't come back and say, hey, uh, how's your investment in Ethereum coming? Because it's down 20%. So keep in mind the volatility is still there. But I'm learning a little bit more about all this stuff. What I have learned is the best way I can explain it is is a bunch of metaphors. Bitcoin is kind of like a bar of gold. It's just something that you put money into with the theory that it will just keep its value or go up. And who knows how far it will go. But with the dollar becoming more inflated, which means that the dollar is going to be worth less and less, Bitcoin is kind of a substitute for a bar of gold. The others, there are several other coins that I would compare to the internet. Like Ethereum has the lead right now, but there are a couple of others like Cardano, Solana are basically their own internets because a lot of smaller cryptocurrencies right now, they're attaching to Ethereum. So Ethereum is like the internet. You know, when you read what these little coins are and they they say, this is an Ethereum token. And next, I think Solana and Cardano, someday they will be more prominent than they are right now. And that's kind of a metaphor for another internet. And then there will be a bunch of smaller Solana tokens that work through the Solana network or Cardano. So keep that in mind. I think that's a metaphor I feel good about saying. Now, another thing when it comes to this stuff, I'm not a CPA. I'm not a financial advisor. Conduct your own research and talk to your own accountant. Talk to your own financial advisor. But what's going on, I think, the people who got in real early, with Bitcoin especially, but there's some who got in real early with Ethereum. And I know Mark Cuban got in real early with Polygon. What these people are doing is they got in real early where they could buy Bitcoin at 10 cents, whatever. And now their holding of Bitcoin, for example, is worth several million dollars. They just get a loan against that. That way they don't have to sell it and incur a bunch of income tax liability. So I think that's what's going on with the people who got in early and have become millionaires for this stuff. But I still feel good about my strategy of looking at these lesser known coins. And if they are less than, say, 50 cents per coin, especially if the circulation number is below 1 billion, which that's not always the case, but... I still feel good about finding these coins that are just 
a few pennies per coin and buying $50 worth and then just forgetting about them. Obviously, if I had done that way at the beginning of Bitcoin, I'd be a billionaire right now. But I still think we're at the early days of cryptocurrency. The only thing I can compare it to is internet investing in the early 90s. So that's where we are with Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other cryptocurrencies. It's an ongoing education for me as to what's going on, but I think it's something that we all need to take seriously because all of these cryptocurrency coins are substitutes for the dollar, which is becoming more inflated. So it's something that I still think as preppers, we need to educate ourselves on this stuff and get to know it all. And this brings me to the last loose end that I wanted to talk about in this episode. And it is a loose end in the sense that I have discussed movies and Hollywood and entertainment in previous episodes of the Survival in Motion podcast. But at this point, I wanted to talk about the latest James Bond movie and what a real tragedy it is. And let me just start off by saying, remember back in the day, whenever it was, when it was just fun to go to see a movie, it was like a three-hour vacation. And you just go and you see an entertainment, you see action or whatever. You buy the popcorn, you just have fun. You kind of put your worries of the day on hold. You and the family or the wife or whatever, just go to see a movie and just enjoy it. And that's it. Nowadays, so many people at their work environment are preached to or they're lectured to about racism and how they're supposed to be doing something about racism or else that makes them a racist, on and on and on. And now Hollywood expects those people to, after their job, go see a movie where they're preached to again and they're supposed to enjoy it. It's the same thing, you know, with watching the news. We get preached to. So people tune out CNN. CNN has awful ratings. And same for sports. You know, you can't even watch a sports event without being preached to. There's just so much preaching going on all the time, everywhere you look, that people are getting sick of it. That's why the Oscars, uh, nobody watches the Oscars anymore. Nobody watches the Emmys. Hollywood used to be just about entertaining people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their skin color is. It's just entertainment. But nowadays, Hollywood and the media in general, and of course, the news media and sports, it's all preaching. So anyway, that leads me to the latest James Bond movie, which was a real tragedy in the sense that the political correctness out there and the wokish mob on Twitter has claimed another scalp. You know, I avoided watching this movie because I kind of knew what was coming. My wife bought it on streaming right before it expired. We watched it. And sure enough, it, it wound up being a tragedy. Let me just say, there are a couple of good things I liked about the James Bond movie. They brought back the 1964 Aston Martin. I did like seeing that again and all the little contraptions on that car. Sure. And I did like some of the music, not only the theme song, We Have All the Time in the World, but the other songs from the other James Bond movie, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think I'm one of the few people who enjoyed that James Bond movie. So there were a couple of good things about this. But, spoiler alert, they killed off Felix Leiter, who was a character I always liked. It was James Bond's friend in uh, the CIA or the FBI, I forget. 
So that guy's killed off. And then James Bond himself gets killed off at the very end. And what they're leading up to is an African actress, Nomi, I think her name is, and her code number is 007. So I think they're kind of setting things up for the next James Bond movie, having a protagonist of this African woman. So it's basically another episode of the white male character being ushered out the door in favor of a minority woman, which, you know, in James Bond history, it's jarring enough to James Bond fans to have Sean Connery go out and George Lazenby and then Roger Moore come in. That's jarring enough. But fans like me, we just like so much of the history of it. We like all the formula of it. And we don't like it when it's screwed around with, and especially when it's made to be politically correct, uh, like it is right now. I predict that what's going to happen is the next James Bond movie comes out, and it's going to have this African woman as the protagonist, and nobody's going to go see it. It's going to be like a basketball or NFL football. People are tired of getting preached to, so they're not going to see it. And then the James Bond movie after that, they're going to figure out a way to bring James Bond back to life, like he never got blown up at the 2021 movie. That's what I predict is going to happen. But these producers of James Bond are too stupid to realize it right now, that this is just part of a pattern out there that people are tired of getting preached to. In fact, if you go to a movie theater nowadays... There's not many people there. Hollywood has to be taken a huge hit. And why is that? Well, because all the protagonists of all the movies out there, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but they're all, you know, female minority. And it's like the producers get back together and check a bunch of boxes. You know, we're going to have this skin color, this ethnic, we're going to have this gender makeup and Nobody cares. Aside from a small group of loudmouths on Twitter, nobody really cares if you go politically correct on all the different characters. A good example I read about uh, this in Hollywood and Toto was the Ghostbusters series of movies. There was Ghostbusters 1 in 1984, then there was Ghostbusters 2 in, I think, 1989. Both of them made a lot of money. And everybody loved them. They were a little bit of science fiction, but mostly comedy. And Bill Murray was given a lot of space to spread his wings. And you get a lot of laughs. And it was funny. They weren't the funniest movies I've ever seen, but they were good. And they made a lot of money. Then came Ghostbusters 3, which was an all-woman cast. And there was one guy who was, this is the first I had read. He was called a himbo, which is kind of a subordinate, silly, uh, trivial actor who happens to be a male. And that movie, which was Ghostbusters 3, came out in 2016, and it lost a whole ton of money. And then Ghostbusters 4 came out, and it also lost a lot of money, because I think it was mostly Ghostbusters 3. People realized, okay, that's the direction this movie franchise is going. It's going to be politically correct and have a whole bunch of nothing-but-women actresses or whatever. And people don't like that. Like I said, there's a small crowd on Twitter who likes this, but basically nobody likes it. But that was the name of the game with Ghostbusters. One and two had good comedy and good actors in it, made a lot of money. And three and four were big money losers because they were very politically correct. And James Bond movies, 
They're not that far removed from a good post-apocalyptic book. And, you know, this is what I write. Of course, with James Bond, uh, you know, a handful of people get killed, whereas your average post-apocalyptic book, like what I write, millions of people get killed, you know. But there still are several things in common with James Bond versus, you know, what I write, the post-apocalyptic books. You've got a series of whiz-bang, you know, scientific things that you watch the James Bond movie and you think, oh, I, I didn't know that that was how it worked. Okay, that's interesting. Like a cabin being depressurized at, you know, 40,000 feet. I didn't know that that would suck a person out like in Goldfinger. Well, that's uh, how it works, you know, and same for my book, EMP NYC. I think I threw in a few scientific things that people didn't know about, and it's kind of a new thing. But also, both James Bond and post-apocalyptic books have interesting characters, interesting character interactions, just a hint of humor every once in a while. Uh, like, for example, in Goldfinger, James Bond has his sexual relations with one of these women who work for Goldfinger, who we find out they're lesbian. And at the end of the Goldfinger movie, Somebody reveals that, hey, uh, that scheme to poison all that military base, uh, that was foiled because uh, one of the uh, Goldfinger women actually uh, helped out the good guys. And James Bond says something like, well, I must have appealed to her maternal instincts. Uh, okay, haha, you know. And that's another thing. Daniel Craig only had one expression on his face. He was never good with delivering one-liner uh, humorous comments here and there. Never. But anyway, as far as just humor goes, I throw that into my books every once in a while. In one scene in EMP NYC, there's a handful of people working on a nuclear bomb. These are the good guys, you know. They're trying to get a detonator hooked up so that it will work with this bomb and, you know, work remotely to blow up some building. And somebody in the room is smoking a cigarette. And then several of the characters start talking about secondhand smoke being unsafe and harmful for people. And that's the closest I came to letting the protagonist kind of blow up. He says, well, everybody just shut up. You've got your hands in the middle of a nuclear bomb here. I don't want to hear about secondhand smoke being unsafe, you know, stuff like that. And as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to writing post-apocalyptic books, you know, there will be be uh, strong female characters. There will also be not so strong female characters. There will be almost an even split, male and female. There will be African Americans. There will be Hispanics. Like, for example, the pilot who flew the biplane from Knoxville to New York City was Ricardo. That's named after a good friend of mine. There will be some ethnic diversity among the characters in my books. But that's not because I'm just checking boxes. That's just to reflect reality out there. That's what our world is like nowadays. We have white people, we have black people, we have Hispanic, and on and on, whatever. It's just something that just makes the story more realistic when it reflects the ethnic makeup of society in general. And that's fine. That's good. But I don't go through and try to check boxes and make sure that every skin color is represented and every female has strength and, you know, that kind of thing. It, nobody cares. People want entertainment. They want to be entertained. They don't want to be preached to. And when it comes to the books that I write and the books I read in the same genre, 
nobody cares, aside from a small group of loudmouths on Twitter. Anyway, it's sad to me to see the producers of the James Bond franchise go down this road that is so predictable. They're going to reach a dead end and realize, oh, oh, I guess people don't like seeing the white guy being killed off and a new character, uh, an African, taking his place. It's very predictable. The next James Bond movie will be a dud. And then after that, they'll say, what were we thinking? We're going to bring back the old James Bond, which will be good. But anyway, I was very disappointed to see that the James Bond movie is the next to fall in line to the rules of political correctness. In closing, I want to wish all of our listeners a great Christmas, which is coming up. Christmas being the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And remember that all the insanity that's going on out there, I watch the news all the time and just think to myself, good thing this is not my world. I'm just passing through, you know. But there's a lot of insanity out there. But I was reading Psalm 118 the other day, and I came across this quote, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That reminds me that despite all the insanity out there, all the craziness that's going on, even James Bond is not immune, that God is in control and he is on his throne and that he is doing all this for his own purposes. So we should rejoice in it and not shrink from it, not feel dejected and ostracized from the world out there. Remember, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So I hope that you have found today's episode of the Survival Emotion podcast entertaining and informative. I hear the music, which means our time is up. Thank you for joining me. God bless. <laughs> 